And as you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, a reminder that the older kids, if they like, in the back of the room, there's a, a box with some red folders in it that should have sermon outlines uh, to help you follow along with the Word, which this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, beginning in verse 69, and we'll be going to chapter 27, verse 10. Just a comment, as we're finishing up our three-plus year study of Matthew's Gospel, we're in these last few moments of Jesus' life, and what we've been noticing the past few weeks as we look at the Last Supper and the arrest of Jesus and the trial of Jesus, we're seeing again and again of the need for a Savior. Each of these vignettes, each of these moments just highlights why Jesus had to die. It's because of a world in sin. And so this morning we will look at Matthew 26, beginning in verse 69, reading through 27.10. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know this man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put, this money, put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. This is the word of the Lord. In Shakespeare's famous play, Macbeth, at the beginning of Act 5, we see Lady Macbeth, uh, who has been complicit. She is guilty in helping to murder King Duncan. And at the beginning of Act 5, Scene 1, she's dealing with her guilt. And she's actually sleepwalking and sleep-talking and being observed by others as she does so. And as she does this, she is uh, she can't get over her grief. She's obsessing over the spots of blood that she imagines are on her hand because of her guilt. Out! Out! I can't get the stains out. And she says things like, Will these hands never be clean? And what's done cannot be undone. And I, I still smell the blood. It smells of blood. All the perfumes in Arabia will not sweeten the smell anymore. Lady Macbeth, in doing so, has become a symbol or a representation of obsession over guilt. 
and of how destructive it can be. Because that's the last we see of Lady Macbeth. In her guilt, she ends up taking her own life. So guilt can be very destructive. Should we then reject the idea of guilt? I mean, isn't that, after all, what the grace of God would lead us to? If God is going to forgive, why should we worry? Why should we feel shame? Why should we feel guilt? Well, no, that doesn't seem right either. So the question before us is, how do we deal with the sense that we have done wrong? That we are, that something is wrong with us? You may have noticed this week on Wednesday, uh, ashes on the foreheads of some of your neighbors. Uh, if they were celebrating Ash Wednesday, uh, a tradition in the Western church, primarily Catholic, but other churches celebrate it as well, where, wherein ashes are placed on the forehead to remind us, 40 days before Easter, of our need for Easter, of our need for a Savior, one who will die in our place. Because ashes are a symbol of mourning in Scripture. And so it's, it's to carry about a reminder that we need to grieve our sin and mourn our unrighteousness. Many of you may have wondered this morning as we, instead of a confession of sin, did a law reading. Why would we in a church that preaches the gospel, feel the need to read the law and be reminded and have pointed out to us that we have failed to uphold God's law. Why are we obsessed with guilt? And I would suggest that we are not obsessed with guilt. We have a laser focus on forgiveness and the salvation that God has given by grace. However, the path to God's salvation must lead us through an acknowledgement and recognition of our guilt, and through a grieving over that guilt. And so Matthew, in, in recounting the final day of Jesus' life, gives us these two stories, parallel stories really, about guilt and how two different men dealt with their guilt in two different ways. Uh, they didn't actually happen chronologically in the way Matthew presents them. Judas's story likely happened sometime after Pilate had sentenced Jesus to death and the chief priest had returned to the temple. But Matthew intentionally arranged them in this way so that we could see the difference between Peter's guilt and Judas's guilt to show us that only through Christ can our guilt be dealt with in a way that leads to life. So we're going to look at three things about our guilt as we look at these stories. We're going to look first at what causes our guilt, and then we're going to look at what comes from our guilt, and finally we'll look at what cures our guilt. First, what causes our guilt? Peter and Judas both fail. They're both guilty, but they are guilty in different ways. Peter, we first see, denies knowing Jesus which is not what he planned to do. If you remember uh, a few verses earlier in Matthew 26, 33, Jesus, after telling uh, the disciples that they're going to fall away, Peter says, no, though they all fall away, I mean, I don't know about you know Bartholomew and Thaddeus and these other guys, but I will never fall away. And Jesus says to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. And yet despite his bravado and his conviction and even uh, at some point in the evening taking up a sword and bravely cutting off someone's ear when they came to arrest Jesus, when the pressure is on, Peter 
cracks. As he watches the trial of Jesus from afar to see how it ends, in verse 69, Peter was sitting outside the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. You know, not, not one of the chief priests, not one of the temple guards, not a Roman soldier, but the, the, what would have been to Peter one of the least threatening figures possible, a young servant girl takes him by surprise and Peter acts in fear. Twice more, he's given a chance to correct himself and to make it right, but instead he doubles down. He, he calls oaths and calls down curses upon himself. Peter's guilt came from his fear and from his failure to be what he intended to be. Judas, on the other hand, was different. Judas conspired to betray Jesus. We saw in Matthew 26, one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me? if I deliver him over to you. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And at that moment, from that moment, Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Judas had been the one to initiate. He had planned it. He had calculated evil and he carried it out. Peter had planned, intended to do what was right, and he had failed. Judas had planned to do what was wrong, and he succeeded. But both of them are equally guilty of sin. Judas recognizes in verse 4 that he's guilty. He says, I've, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And most commentators agree, and I would agree, that Judas seems to have in mind the, uh, the law of God in Deuteronomy 27 that says, Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. Judas knew that he had chosen a path of evil, and now he was guilty. And so in these two stories, you have Judas who planned to do wrong, and you have Peter who intended, had every intention of doing the right thing and failed at it. And both of them are guilty. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is one of the documents we look to to, to help uh, explain and teach our doctrines of theology, asks the question 14, what is sin? And the answer is, and I'm going to translate it, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Simply put, sin is not being what God calls us to be. That's want a lack of conformity. Or it's choosing not to do what we are supposed to do. Failing at the good or choosing the bad, both are sin. This might be a little different from how we like to think of sin. Many of you know that I... I served in the mission field in, in Asia. And the language that we had to use, the Chinese language uh, for sin, the word for sin is zui. And the word for a legal crime that you would be, for which you would be put in prison is zui. Which if you didn't hear a difference, it's because there is no difference. There's no separate word for a moral or spiritual sin. There's one word and it means sin, but it also means a legal crime. And so you can imagine trying to share the message of Scripture with somebody and trying to tell them, no, the Bible says you are a sinner. And what they're hearing is, you have committed a crime, something you'd call the police for, something you'd go to jail for. To accuse them and say that the Bible says all are sinners is like saying that uh, they've done some sort of intentional criminal act, which they would deny. Now, it might seem like a little language quirk, but I think it honestly and accurately reveals how we think of sin as well. 
We don't easily or naturally think of ourselves as sinners because we don't think of ourselves as bad people. You know, we look to other people and judge how we're doing. We, we picture uh, you know, all humanity on one great spectrum with a line dividing where is good and where is evil. And everybody on this side of the line is an evil person because they've done enough bad things. And everyone on this side of the line is good. And we don't know exactly where we are, but if we look that direction, we see enough bad people to think, you know what, I'm, I'm surely on the side of good. How can I be a sinner if I'm a good person? I'm not a bad person. I don't go out there choosing horrible things to do every day. Every day. We could turn on the news. We could open Twitter or Facebook and, and surely see enough people who are worse than us to convince us that we're good. When we compare ourselves to other people, we might not feel guilty. But when we compare ourselves with God's law and His standard, which is why in our worship this morning, we did a reading of the law to remind us of what the real standard is. When we compare ourselves to God's law, we see how we really are. In the book of James, we're reminded that guilt is not just about choosing bad things and pursuing bad things. But in James 4, the brother of Jesus says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Just knowing what is right and not doing it makes you guilty. Why do I say this? Why am I harping on this? I'm not trying to depress you. I'm not trying to give you a complex. I'm not trying to crush you or insult you. I say it because as Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Only when we understand our need will we seek the right solution. What causes our sense of guilt? It is failing to be and do what we ought to do or choosing what we ought not choose. Either way, we are guilty. Our guilt comes from our sin. Regardless of how we got there, we're there. The result is the same. Now the question is, what comes from our guilt? In the case of Peter, in verse 75, it says he went out and wept bitterly. In the case of Judas in chapter 27, verse 3, he changed his mind. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Peter is weeping. Judas is trying to undo what has already been done. What comes from our guilt is pain and sorrow. You might take a different path to get there, but the result is the same. Peter and Judas both feel regret, which means they're not happy with the choices they made. Peter for failing to be what he aspired to be, what he knew was good. Judas for choosing what he knew was wrong. In both cases, they arrive at regret. But if we dig deeper, I think we see more in these stories that comes from their guilt. We see Peter who tried, I think, to save his life. He didn't want to be, he knew that Jesus was headed towards destruction. And if he identified with Jesus, he too would be roped in and accused and condemned. But Jesus had warned His disciples in Mark 8 that if anyone would come after Me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake and the Gospels will, will save it. Peter is trying to protect and preserve himself and he fails at it. He loses true life. Judas also makes a, a distressing discovery 
when he tries to fix what he's done, he goes back to the temple and discovers that he is just a pawn in someone else's game. Verse 20, uh, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 27. Judas changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Look, Jesus is innocent, and I want no part in this now that he's condemned. And what do they say to him? They say, so what? What is that to us? See to it yourself. You fix your own problems. What is that to us? In other words, not my problem. Yeah, I was happy to get you into this mess, but I'm going to do nothing to get you out of it. They had used him for their own purposes, and now that he wants to change course, now that he wants to do what's right, he's trapped. Those that lead us into sin, those that partner with us in sin, are not trying to help us. And we will face the consequences alone. I warned you a few weeks ago that I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia with my daughter, and so you're going to get a lot of these illustrations. But as I thought about Judas and, and, and how he was just a pawn, trapped in somebody else's game, I thought of Edmund in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a young man who, when he meets in Narnia the White Witch, who's like the Satan character in that story, she uh, entices him with, with gifts and sweets and whispers in his ear promises of, well, if you, if you help me, you'll, you'll, be, like, you'll be a prince. And, and someday, because you're my prince, you'll become the king. And she persuades him that she's on his side. But when it comes down to it, once Edmund sees where it's all leading, he finds out he was not her prince. She was not on his side. He is her slave. And she's abusing him. And he's about to be her victim as she prepares to slay him. In John 8, Jesus says his famous line, You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. But his audience objects to that, saying, look, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? I mean, Jesus, call us guilty. Call us whatever you want, but we're not slaves. We don't need to be set free. And Jesus answers in verse 34, truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus describes us as being enslaved, captured by sin. So what comes from our guilt? When we sin, we're not free. We are serving, we're supporting another agenda. Judas learned that. He realized he'd just been used and his sin was a part of somebody else's plan to accomplish their purposes. We have this dangerous but common view around us that we hear and maybe even think sometimes that religious Godly, Christian people who follow God's way, we're the restricted ones. And to sin is to be free. No, that's a delusion. No, God's law, James calls it the law that gives freedom. Because if, if, if you've got a car and you say, man, you tell me I have to put gasoline in this thing, that's restrictive. I'm going I'm to put lemonade in here. It's going to smell nice and it's going to be great. That's not freedom. Violating the rules is not freedom there. It's enslavement and it's foolishness. God's law restricts us to what works. It restricts us to what's good. It restricts us to what will lead to true happiness. But once we see that we've been bamboozled, we've been tricked into thinking that we can be free by serving another, that delusion is broken 
And what results from our guilt is that we grieve. And when we grieve over our guilt, we go looking for a solution. And Judas, in his search for a solution, in his search for a way out, he despaired. He did not see any hope, and so he took his own life. But sadly, the very thing that led Judas to despair would have been the cure. Judas despaired because he saw, Matthew says, that Jesus had been condemned. And Judas saw Jesus being led away to death, and he said, how could I have done that? And in seeing that, he despaired. But Jesus being led away to death was his salvation. It would have been the cure for his guilt. And so we've seen what, where our guilt, what causes our guilt is our sin, and what comes from our guilt is regret and despair and enslavement. But what cures our guilt is Jesus in our place. If I had the time this morning, and I don't because it's almost afternoon, if I had the time, I would love to spend considerable time talking about fields and potters and silver and prophets like Matthew describes here um, because there's a theme of the judgment and mercy of God. Instead, I'm going to have to just hit the highlights. I want you to hang with me as we do a whirlwind tour of Jeremiah and Zechariah and their prophecies that Matthew quotes here. Because because Matthew quotes Jeremiah, look at verse uh, 27, verses 7 through 10. The chief priests and, and elders take counsel and they bought with the silver. The potter's field is a burial place for strangers, which therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. If you were to read the whole book of Jeremiah, which would take you some time, you would not find those words because most of them came from Zechariah. But what Matthew's doing is something he does several times in his gospel. He's doing a mashup. He's taking quotes from one place and quotes from another, combining them into one single quote, and then he attributes it to who's the more well-known of the two. You know, if he's quoting Isaiah and Micah, he, he mixes them together and then says, you know, this track is courtesy of Isaiah. You know, that's how he does a mashup. So he's combining a Jeremiah prophecy and a Zechariah prophecy. If you look at Jeremiah 19, which we're not going to quote it, but the whole story of Jeremiah 19, God calls Jeremiah to take some pottery from a potter and to go into a field and to break the pottery and throw it on the field and declare that, that God has judged His people and they will be shattered and broken. And this field where He stands, the valley of the son of Himon, shall become a burial place, a field of blood. The very field that they purchased with Judas's blood money was the valley of Hinnon, where Jeremiah had prophesied. A valley that was to be used for burial, a field of blood. But if you remember Zechariah from a few weeks ago as we looked at Judas receiving the 30 pieces of silver, we looked at in Zechariah how that 30 pieces was a prophecy where Zechariah had served as a shepherd but been rejected by the people. And said, give me whatever you think I'm worth. And they gave him 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And so disgusted by that, the Lord told him to throw it back into the temple. We see in Zechariah 11. I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord, to the potter. And what did we see that Judas did with the 30 pieces of silver? He threw them back into the house of the Lord. 
But if we were to keep reading Zechariah, after he has been rejected, just as God was rejected by his people, what goes on to happen in the same prophecy, Zechariah 12, verse 10, God says, But I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So after in Zechariah 11, seeing the shepherd rejected for the price of 30 pieces of silver, God says, they will pierce me, they will mourn for me, the firstborn, the only one, the only son. And then, just a few verses later, in the same prophecy, God says in Zechariah 13, that on that day, after they have pierced me and mourned for me, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Matthew is writing primarily to Jewish Christians who know their scriptures. And when they hear of the potter's field and the 30 pieces of silver being cast back into the temple, they know how that prophecy plays out. They know where it leads. It leads to mourning over the one who is pierced just as Jesus would be pierced on the cross later that day. And they know that it leads to a fountain being opened for forgiveness. What cures our guilt? What cures our guilt is the fountain that the Lord opens from the one that was pierced. A fountain that cleanses sin and uncleanness. That is the cure for our guilt. Our own works cannot erase it. No matter how bitterly Peter weeps, he can't be forgiven by his tears. No matter how faithfully and zealously he serves in the years after, it will not atone for his guilt. No matter what Judas does in his guilt, it can't make it right. As we often sing from Rock of Ages, could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no respite know? All for sin could not atone. God, Thou must save and Thou alone. So when Jesus in the Last Supper predicted Peter's denial, look what He said in the words that Luke records in Luke 22. After predicting Peter's denial, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, that's Peter's other name, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. Peter would fail, but not forever. Why? Was it because he was stronger than others? No. Was it because he was just lucky? Because his tears were sincere? Because what he did wasn't that bad? No. Peter's faith would remain because it wasn't up to Peter. It was up to Jesus. Jesus says, I've prayed for you, Peter. I've carried the burden. I have been faithful when you have failed. It's the work and the ministry of grace through Jesus Christ that cures your guilt and restores you just as Jesus would later restore Peter after his resurrection three times, giving Peter the opportunity to confess his love. Three times, calling Peter back to faithful service. What a, a vivid picture these two stories are of the direction that guilt can take us. No wonder Matthew put them next to each other. 
When looked at side by side, they illustrate what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. The paths that these two men took in, in, in through their guilt and because of their guilt. Judas's grief over his sin was a worldly grief that couldn't look past the sin and its consequences, couldn't see a way out of the valley of despair, and in the end, worldly sorrow leads to death. Not just physical death, but death because if we do not, through our despair and through our guilt, cling to Christ and what He brings and trust Him to get us out, then we have no hope and no salvation. But Peter's grief just as real and just as legitimate. He had done wrong. He was guilty. He was right to grieve. But he was able to, in the end, move past his sin into service and salvation because of what happened in between these two stories. Because after Peter goes out and weeps, Matthew records that Jesus is carried away into death. Because of his death, Peter is able to grieve differently than Judas. Whatever punishment we imagine or know that we deserve, Jesus has already received it for us. Which allows our grief over our guilt to pass through sorrow, through repentance, and into salvation. So yes, we will, we will continue to confess our sins in our worship. We will continue to remind one another of our need for repentance. But the direction of our guilt is never despair or hopelessness or condemnation. It's not guilt for guilt's sake. The direction of our guilt is salvation without regret, restoration, and ultimately the end of guilt through the grace of God made possible by the death and life of Jesus Christ, which we have represented for us as we approach the Lord's table for the Lord's Supper today. So let us pray and prepare our hearts to receive the sacrament.